Chapter 8 Having come from the light and from the gods, here I am in exile, separated from them. Fragment of Turfan M7 In those days Pilates Bar was a free port, a galactic tavern where alien invaders from Ofiuko could rub elbows peaceably with the soldiers of the Empire patrolling the Van Allen Belt. It was an old bar near one of the Navigli, the Milan Canals, with a zinc counter and a billiard table. Local tram drivers and artisans would drop in first thing in the morning for a glass of white wine. In 68 and in the years that followed, Pilates became a kind of Rick's Café, where movement activists could play cards with a reporter from the boss's newspaper who had come in for a whiskey after putting the paper to bed, while the first trucks were already out distributing the establishment's lies to the newsstands. But at Pilates the reporter also felt like an exploited proletarian, a producer of surplus value chained to an ideological assembly line, and the students forgave him. Between eleven at night and two in the morning you might see a young publisher, an architect, a crime reporter trying to work his way up to the arts page, some Brera Academy painters, a few semi-successful writers, and students like me. A minimum of alcoholic stimulation was the rule, and old Pilade, while he still stocked his big bottles of white for the tram drivers and the most aristocratic customers, replaced root beer and cream soda with pétillon wines with the right labels for the intellectuals and Johnny Walker for the revolutionaries. I could write the political history of those years based on how red label gradually gave way to twelve-year-old valentine and then to single malt. At the old billiard table the painters and motormen still challenged each other to games, but with the arrival of the new clientele Pilade also put in a pinball machine. I was never able to make the little balls last. At first I attributed that to absent-mindedness or a lack of manual dexterity. I learned the truth years later after watching Lorenza Pellegrini play. At the beginning I hadn't noticed her, but then she came into focus one evening when I followed the direction of Belbo's gaze. Belbo had a way of standing at the bar as if he were just passing through. He had been a regular there for at least ten years. He often took part in conversations, at the counter or at a table, but almost always he did no more than drop some short remark that would instantly freeze all enthusiasm, no matter what subject was being discussed. He had another freezing technique, asking a question. Someone would be talking about an event, the whole group would be completely absorbed, then Belbo, turning his pale, slightly absent eyes on the speaker, with his glass at hip level, as though he had long forgotten he was drinking, would ask, Is that a fact? Or, Really? At which point everyone, including the narrator, would suddenly begin to doubt the story. Maybe it was the way Belbo's Piedmont drawl made his statements interrogative and his interrogatives taunting. And he had yet another Piedmont trick, looking into his interlocutor's eyes, but as if he were avoiding them. His gaze didn't exactly shirk dialogue, but he would suddenly seem to concentrate on some distant convergence of parallel lines no one had paid attention to. He made you feel that you'd been staring all this time at the one place that was unimportant. It wasn't just his gaze. Belbo could dismiss you with the smallest gesture, a brief interjection. Suppose you were trying hard to show that it was Kant who really completed the Copernican Revolution in modern philosophy. Suppose you were staking your whole future on that thesis. Belbo, sitting opposite you with his eyes half-closed, would suddenly look down at his hands or at his knee with an Etruscan smile. Or he would sit back with his mouth open, eyes on the ceiling, and mumble, Yes, Kant. 
or he would commit himself more explicitly in an assault on the whole system of transcendental idealism. You really think Kant meant all that stuff? Then he would look at you with solicitude, as if you and not he had disturbed the spell, and he would then encourage you. Go ahead, go ahead. I mean, there must be something to it. The man had a mind, after all. But sometimes Belbo, when he became really angry, lost his composure. Since loss of composure was the one thing he could not tolerate in others, his own was wholly internal and regional. He would purse his lips, raise his eyes, then look down, tilt his head to the left, and say in a soft voice, Magavte lanata. For anyone who didn't know that Piedmontese expression, he would occasionally explain, Magavte lanata, take out the cork. You say it to one who is full of himself, the idea being that what causes him to swell and strut is the pressure of a cork stuck in his behind. Remove it, and psh, he returns to the human condition. Belbo's remarks had a way of making you see the vanity of things, and they delighted me, but I drew the wrong conclusion from them, considering them an expression of supreme contempt for the banality of other people's truth. Now, having breached the secret of Abulafia, and with it Belbo's soul, I see that what I thought disenchantment and a philosophy of life was a form of melancholy. His intellectual disrespect concealed a desperate thirst for the absolute. This was not immediately obvious, because Belbo had many moods—irresponsibility, hesitation, indifference—and there were also moments when he relaxed and enjoyed conversation, asserting absolutely contradictory ideas with light-hearted disbelief. Then he and Diotalevi would create handbooks for impossibilities, or invent upside-down worlds or bibliographical monstrosities. When you saw him so enthusiastically talkative, reconstructing his Rabelaisian Sorbonne, there was no way of knowing how much he suffered at his exile from the faculty of theology, the real one. I had deliberately thrown that address away. He had mislaid it and could never resign himself to the loss. In Abulafia's files I found many passages of a pseudo-diary that Belbo had entrusted to the password, confident that he was not betraying his often-repeated vow to remain a mere spectator of the world. Some entries carried old dates. Obviously, he had put these on the computer out of nostalgia, or because he planned to recycle them eventually. Others were more recent, after the advent of Abu. His writing was a mechanical game, a solitary pondering on his own errors. But it was not, he thought, creation, for creation had to be inspired by love of someone who is not ourselves. But Belbo, without realizing it, had crossed that Rubicon. He was creating, unfortunately. His enthusiasm for the plan came from his ambition to write a book. No matter if the book were made entirely of errors, intentional deadly errors, as long as you remain in your private vacuum you can pretend you are in harmony with the One. But the moment you pick up the clay, electronic or otherwise, you become a demiurge, and he who embarks on the creation of worlds is already tainted with corruption and evil. File Name A Bevy of Fair Women it's like this. Toutes les femmes que j'ai rencontrées se dressent aux horizons, avec les gestes piteux et les regards tristes des semaphores sous la pluie. Aim high, Belbo. First love, the most blessed virgin. Mama singing as she holds me on her lap as if rocking me, though I'm past the age for lullabies, but I asked her to sing because I love her voice and the lavender scent of her bosom.
O Queen of Heaven, fair and pure, hail, O daughter, Queen demure, hail, Mother of our Saviour. Naturally, the first woman in my life was not mine. By definition, she was not anyone's. I fell immediately in love with the only person capable of doing everything without me. Then, Marilena. Mary Lena. Mary Lena. Describe the lyric twilight, her golden hair, big blue bow, me standing in front of the bench with my nose upward, she tightrope walking on the top rail of the back, swaying, arms outstretched for balance, delicious extrasystoles, skirt flapping around her pink thighs, high above me, unattainable. Sketch, that same evening as Mama sprinkles talcum powder on my sister's pink skin, I ask when her wee-wee will finally grow out. Mama's answer is that little girls don't grow wee-wees, they stay like that. Suddenly I see Mary Lena again, the white of her underpants visible beneath the fluttering blue skirt, and I realize that she is blonde and haughty and inaccessible because she is different. No possible relationship. She belongs to another race. My third woman, swiftly lost in the abyss, where she has plunged. She has died in her sleep. Virginal Ophelia amid flowers on her bier. The priest is reciting the prayer for the dead, when suddenly she sits up on the catafalque, pale, frowning, vindictive, pointing her finger and her voice cavernous. Don't pray for me, Father. Before I fell asleep last night I had an impure thought, the only one in my life, and now I am damned. Find the book of my first communion. Does it have this illustration, or did I make the whole thing up? She must have died while thinking of me. I was the impure thought, desiring the untouchable Mary Lena, she of a different species and fate. I am guilty of her damnation. I am guilty of the damnation of all women who are damned. It is right that I should not have had these three women, my punishment for wanting them. I lose the first because she's in paradise, the second because she's in purgatory, envying the penis that will never be hers, and the third because she's in hell, theologically symmetrical. But this has already been written. On the other hand, there's the story of Cecilia, and Cecilia is here on earth. I used to think about her before falling asleep. I would be climbing the hill on my way to the farm for milk, and when the partisans started shooting at the roadblock from the hill opposite, I pictured myself rushing to her rescue, saving her from the horde of fascist brigands who chased her, brandishing their weapons. Blonder than Mary Lena, more disturbing than the maiden in the sarcophagus, more pure and demure than the virgin. Cecilia alive and accessible. I could have talked to her so easily, for I was sure she could love one of my species. And in fact she did. His name was Poppy. He had wispy blonde hair and a tiny skull, was a year older than I, and had a saxophone. I didn't even have a trumpet. I never saw the two of them together, but all the kids at Sunday school laughed, poked one another in the ribs, and whispered, giggling, that the pair made love. They were probably lying, little peasants, horny as goats, but they were probably right that she, Marilena Cecilia Bride and Queen, was accessible, so accessible that someone had already gained access to her. In any case, the fourth case, I was out in the cold. Could a story like this be made into a novel? Perhaps I should write instead about the women I avoid because I can have them, or could have had them. Same story. If you can't even decide what the story is, better stick to editing books on philosophy.